And we are kicking off a brand, brand new series, an important series, I think, important series. It's more of a, I would say it's even a kind of a fundamental, a biblical fundamental series, a much needed series, one that we haven't really done in a long, long time here at Southfields, and one that I would probably suggest that you kind of lock in, not only today, but over the next several weeks, lock in, take some notes, because this is going to be really, really, really good. And it's titled Breath, Doves, Clouds, and Fire. It sounds like an album, right? Breath, doves, clouds, and fire. Here's the thing. We all, we all have moments when we feel lost, when we feel uh, somewhat alone, not sure what decision uh, to make or path to take. We were out at dinner uh, the other day. My brother-in-law was in front of me, and we sat in front of each other. What are you going to eat? I don't know what you can eat. I don't know, I don't know what to eat. There's a lot of stuff. What are you going to eat? Anything like that? And then we start asking the waiter, and we, it, we were a hot mess. We were a hot mess trying to figure out. It's that moment that kind of builds up anxiety, that kind of like, what should I do? What, what should I do next, right? And when these moments come up, it spikes our anxiety and kind of shakes our confidence. Because what if we don't like the spaghetti? And, and like, you know, you start thinking about all of these things. Now, God's solution, God's solution to, to all of this is to give us his spirit to give us the Holy Spirit. But, but what does that actually mean? How do we relate to something that is invisible, right? How do we relate to that? If that sounds somewhat mysterious, somewhat abstract and confusing to you, understand this, that you are not alone. The writers of Scripture spoke of the Holy Spirit almost exclusively as a metaphor, echoing four word pictures in particular. So how does this help us? What, what can unpacking these metaphors teach us about the practical ways that the Holy Spirit can help us make sense of our lives? Maybe you've heard that notion, man, it's that, that gut feeling. Well, it's not your gut. That's your intestines making noise, right? But it's something deeper inside that says, man, this is what I need to do. This is where I need to go. And then around the Christian realm, we talk about that being the Holy Spirit. So let's, talk, let's start off with a talk on the Trinity, right? The three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how to expand your view when it comes to talking about the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, right? Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a time when you, you saw someone through a single lens, right? You saw someone through a single lens, and then you learn something a little bit later about them, something new about them that enabled you kind of to, kind of like to, to relate to them or see them in a different level, at a deeper level, a richer level. Anybody ever been there, right? Um, maybe, maybe uh, you found <laughs> the, your cashier you found out that your cashier at your local Vons went to elementary school with you. You're like, oh, I knew I knew he's from somewhere. And now you see that person in a whole new light. Like now you're like, hey, how you doing? How are the kids? Right? Before you were like, mm. 
But now that you knew that you go way back to elementary school, it's a whole new ball game. Or that, oh, your nail lady. Now you know your nail lady is a black belt in jujitsu. <laughs> that's like eye-opening. Like that's just like you're like, I guess I can't say nothing about the next time she does my nails because she might kick my butt. Right? Or or like that one time, that one time where uh, when a kid walked into the restaurant in Puerto Rico and found out that his school's assistant principal, Monica Pena, also liked Mexican food. It was like mind-blowing. He walked in and he was like... And it, Monica's like, that's just like torture to the kids, right? When an adult goes like this to the little kid, he's like, oh gosh, they're saying me, Right? Here's the thing, when we only relate to someone in one way or in one context, our idea of them often narrows. It narrows to fit within the parameters of those experiences. So if you only saw your cashier as a cashier, you just had a narrow perception of who that person is. You don't know anything about them other than they're a cashier and they need to ring you up. And you get mad because she's not bagging your stuff. Or, or, or when you run into someone that, that you don't know or actually you, you do, the nail lady, hey, she always does my nails. And all of a sudden she does something different and you're like, oh, she got more skills than here at the salon. It happens naturally to all of us. We've almost all had the experience as kids of running into our, uh, our kindergarten teacher or an admin, in this case, at the grocery store and had no idea what to do with ourselves. We ran into them and we had no idea what to do with the reality that she or he is an actual real person that they actually have a life outside of the classroom, that they are actually buying toilet paper. Charmin, I thought. I thought she lived in the janitor's closet and had that sandy paper, right? When this happens, we sometimes feel somewhat betrayed. Like, I thought I knew you. I thought I knew you, Miss Pena, Right? But it isn't that they lied to you or, or that they tricked you or that we didn't know them. We just knew a part of them and not a whole of them. Does that make sense? And so we do this all of the time without even meaning to. We simplify our, our idea of people. We categorize them to make sense of and we categorize them, we character, character, no, I can't even say the word, characterize them to make sense of and know how to kind of relate to them. But you and I both know that that's not really simple to do. We know who they are, but we don't know the full picture. And the more that we learn about them and the more uh, context that we uh, dip in and dab in and kind of grab onto and, they interact, and when we interact with them, the more of the whole of them comes into view and then the deeper the relationship can get. 
Think of the closest relationship that you have right now. It probably started pretty generic and broad, right? You knew a little bit about one aspect of them, but as the relationship kind of moved forward, as the relationship progressed, you learned a little bit more, right? You learned who they were. You get to see now someone in a different context than what you saw back then because now you see more of who they are than you did before. And the more that we know, the deeper that we can go in our relationship. And if it's true that we oversimplify people, then it can certainly be true, or much truer, that we oversimplify God. If we do that to to the regular people that we physically see, that we do life with, that we can touch, right? People that we can laugh and engage with. How much easier is it for us to do it to oversimplify God? You see, God is bigger and broader than we can ever imagine. There is so much depth and dimension to him. But many of us get used, uh, used to relating to God in only one way or in one context. And our idea of him kind of narrows down to fit within the parameters of that experience. And so if you only knew who God is through the eyes of your grandma or going to your grandma's house and all of the trinkets that she had in her house, then that is what you understand who God is. Our relationship with him becomes sort of kind of surfacy and one-dimensional. And the part of God we know may be only one part of him. And if we keep asking him and and learning about him, there's so much more depth that we're going to have about him, so much more to him than we understood at the very beginning. There's going to be a richer, deeper relationship to be experienced. Think about this. When When someone says God to you, your mind starts coming up with your your thoughts, right? Something comes to mind, right? Thoughts, ideas, perceptions. It may be something helpful or accurate or not, but something comes to mind when you hear the word God. You could, you could go to a place where nobody believes about God and still mention God, and they are going to have thoughts, ideas, and perceptions of who God is. Maybe it's an image. Maybe it's an experience. Maybe you picture a particular painting. Everybody had grandma or my mom had a picture of Jesus in a gold frame, right? Uh, and, he, and it was like that real proper thing. And everywhere you went, Jesus' eyes followed you. <laughs> oh, you can't see me. I thought you can't see me. Oh, he still, still, he still sees me. Kind of that everlasting pursuit of love, right? <laughs> Maybe it's a, a parable. But something comes to mind when you hear the word God. And the reason this is important to us uh, is because the reason it's important for us to unpack is because who we think 
God is, has a profound, has a deep implication for who we think we are. In the Bible, we learn that we are made in his image, in his likeness. And so what we perceive or what we come to understand who God is will impact who we think and who we believe we are. Does that make sense? And that's something that we all end up wrestling with because many of us are asking the questions, who am I? Who am I? What's my life about? What am I even doing here on earth? How do I find meaning to this? What's worth my limited breath, my strength, my time, my energy, my money? We all ask these questions. And so the reality is that a distorted view, a distorted view of God leads to a distorted view of ourselves. Because if you cannot see and cannot grasp and cannot fully or to someone understand who God is, it's going to be very difficult for you to understand who you are and who he created you to be. People are out there chasing, oh, I want to do this in life, and oh, I want to do this, and I'm not this, and I'm not that, but I want to be this, and I want to be that. And they fail to ask the question, God, who are you? Because when I understand who you are, then it positions me better to understand who I was created to be. There's a lot at stake here, church. There's a lot at stake here. Does that make sense? Am I like, like, are you tracking along with me? Yeah? So how did this view of God come about? How did this view of God come about? This mysterious kind of co-mingling of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. How did this all come about? To answer that, we've got to go back a long time ago to a land far, far away. in a period of civil unrest to a guy named Moses. Moses is a significant historical, historical Hebrew figure. But up to this point in his life, he hasn't really quite figured out what to do. Life hasn't gone the way he had hoped. And then he has this odd encounter with God. And listen to... What God says to him, that's for for all my Star Wars people out there, right? Listen to what God says to him in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 to 9. It says, Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. So basically, 
this is telling us that there is something bigger than and outside of us that's watching. That's listening. That's paying attention to what is happening down here. To what though, right? To what? What prompts this being to speak up and spring into action? According to this story, the oppression that's going on, the suffering and distress of the underdog, Moses is thinking, man, I sure am relieved that, that you see it, and I cannot wait to see what you do about it. And then God says in verse 10 to 14, he says, now go. Go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh, and you must lead my people out of uh, uh, lead, lead my people Israel out of Egypt. Moses protested to God, "Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt?" God answered, "I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you." When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. Verse 13, but Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, essentially what God is saying, who am I? Like, really? Like, they're asking that question, who am I? I am the all-powerful source and sustainer of all things. I am breath, life, love, truth, justice, and reality itself. Tell them that. Tell them that's who I am. Now, as I said before, we're way back into history here. So this was this kind of saying, this kind of idea that God has just said is kind of new. It's a new idea. People back then didn't think there was a God. They thought, they thought that there were many gods, that there were various forces out there that were selfishly competing and battling and dominating, right, and manipulating humanity. And that's what this story is about. Moses versus Pharaoh, Israel versus Jesus, uh, Egypt, isn't really about two people or two countries or two places. It's about the clashing of two fundamentally different worldviews. Is there a God who sees oppression, hears the cries of the suffering, of the distress, aware of those people that are going through stuff, that comes to and rescues them? Or are there many gods who selfishly compete, battle and overpower and dominate and manipulate humanity to get what they want? Those are two different views two different understandings. And so this is important because who we think God is 
has a deep, profound implication on who we think we are. Because the moment we don't understand that there is a God, then your understanding of who you are will kind of rattle off and swirl into abyss. But the moment we understand that there is one true God and he created me and he gave me a purpose, a plan for life, now I understand and I can better begin to walk the path that has been set for me. And the epiphany Moses has is this, that this, there is one true God and he is much bigger than you think. Listen, he's omnipotent. He can do anything. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. And he's omniscient. He knows all things. And he's designed the world to work a certain way. That's who he is. In other words, God has preferences. Not in the sense that he likes uh, nachos over mac and cheese or 80s hip-hop over uh, Yeezy and, and Travis Scott. Right? Although he might. But that's another story. But it's more like he thinks people shouldn't be enslaved. He thinks that inequality is wrong and that loving self-sacrifice is the way forward. Now, if you have a hard time envisioning energy and existence itself, having preferences, then you're not alone. People People back then did as well, which is why it doesn't take long for them to kind of give them a nickname, give a nickname to the image of God which is Father. Let me break this down a little bit. Why Father? Because to these ancient people, it was the most intuitive way to personify the kind of the abstract concept of God. Your earthly father physically gave you life and breath and provides and cares for you and teaches you right from wrong. So it was helpful for these people to to think of humanity as having a heavenly father who did the same for all of us on a more significant spiritual scale. But like every good image of God, it is both accurate yet incomplete. It's hard to relationally connect to the abstract and the invisible. People need a sample. They need an example. They need an illustration, right? You need, uh, if you're a visual learner, you need pictures. Anybody need pictures in a book? I need pictures. Because I like to see it. I like my mind to to go out and I want to see what this thing looks like. And so, People need a sample of it. And so God does something radical here. He puts skin on the source. He packages himself in a person to help us relate. 
He does this in the person of Jesus. In John 4, there's a scene where Jesus is is talking to a woman at the well, and they start having a spiritual conversation, and he says something incredibly significant here. And he says uh, in verse 23, But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must now must worship him, must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Jesus is intentionally echoing the language that was used back in Exodus. He is saying, I am the I am. I am the Messiah, the Christ, the source with skin on, here to show you the way. And this is where we get the image of Jesus the Son. We have the Father, and now we have the Son, a human, I don't know, embodiment of God, right? Fully God, yet fully human, the perfect union of the two. And we see Jesus and his followers reiterating this again and again and again. In Colossians uh, chapter 1, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things that we cannot see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds the create all of creation together. Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. So we have God who we cannot see, the creator of heaven and earth, decided to put source, the skin on the source and came down to us in flesh, and that is Jesus, the Son. This is telling us that God isn't just a set of principles to adhere to. He is a person to relate to, to be in relationship with. He's not a statue. He's not something that is just in a book. He is flesh bones and blood, someone that we, you and I, can be in a relationship with. And through Jesus, we can see who God is and how he relates to humanity on an individual and societal level. He taught and did miracles and ate with people and gave validity and dignity to those who felt overlooked and oppressed. In other words, Jesus did human stuff in a way that brought heaven down to earth and then told his followers, hey, give me a light. Give me a thumbs up. 
Hit me up. Follow me. Mimic me. Model me. Do what I do. Let me be your sample. Let me be your example. Let me be your illustration on how to do things here on earth. Which is absolutely so helpful, but also incomplete. Because the problem is when you package an infinite being in a finite body, it takes on the limitations of humanity. And so people stop right there at just Jesus. He was human. He was flesh. He was just like me. Yeah. But he was a whole lot more. He was a whole lot more. So so I can look down through history and see how Jesus handled that. But how do I handle this now? And even if Jesus showed up during this time in history, a human body cannot be in multiple places at once. Jesus could only be with the people that he was with at that point in time. But you know what? I need him now. I need him with me now. And so do a billions of other people need him, which makes something else Jesus did even more interesting. John 16, 7 says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, then the advocate won't come. If I, go, if I do go away, then I will send him to you. Advocate. Only time we use advocate is when we talk about court, right? Advocate. Now, now we've got a third being in this story. What's up with that? Another image, another role. And it says in John 14, verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because he isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. Now check this out. In any English translation of the Bible, the word advocate always has kind of like an asterisk next to it or a letter next to it directing you to kind of a, like a footnote at the bottom of the Bible explaining the word Jesus said doesn't have an English e, uh, equivalent and then gives a list of words next to it to kind of, kind of make up for it. And words like comforter, counselor, helper, encourager. The Greek word for this is parakletos, which literally means one sent to help, right? Or one who appears on another's behalf. In other words, God, the source of all things, reveals himself to us through the Son and then moves in us through the Spirit. 
that make sense? You see how, how it plays along here? here here's, how, here's how I think about it. God as Father is the source and sustainer of it all. God as Son is the skin and bone sample to show us the way. God as Spirit is the eternal advocate steering us forward. Right? Now maybe, maybe you're sitting here like, I, <laughs> I kind of get it. I don't. I don't. I don't get it. I don't get it. Let me tell you this. If, if you could completely wrap your brain around it, you would no longer be talking about God. Now, this doesn't mean that all images of God are equally valid. Some are just plain wrong. But it does mean that even the accurate ones will always still be incomplete. They'll always still be incomplete. God is mysteriously all things, all of the time, all at once. You cannot really put God in a box. You cannot really define him to be one way, this way, or that way. You can't. But the beauty of this progression of imagery to me is that God goes from out there to right there to in here. God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let me wrap this up this morning. We may be, we may be able to wrap our brains around God as Father, and we can relate to God as Son through the life that we read about of Jesus. But the truth is that we're not quite sure how to relate to God as Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so we wrestle with a two-dimensional relationship with God instead of the three-dimensional relationship it was intended for us to have with him. Now maybe you're thinking, well, of course the first two are easier to relate to. They kind of come with built-in metaphors that we've already understand and that help us know what the relationship is supposed to look like. We kind of know what a father is. We kind of know what a rabbi or teacher is. But how do you describe spirit? How do you kind of put labels on the spirit? What does the spirit look like? How does the spirit function? How do you relate to it? Truth is, church, you're not the only one that is stumped by it all. All throughout scripture, the spirit of God is spoken of almost entirely in a metaphor word pictures that help us understand how the spirit functions, acts, and relates. Several are used, but four in particular are repeated more often. Breath, doves, clouds, and fire. Why is that? Well, what can these images teach us 
about who or what the Holy Spirit is and the kind of relationship that he wants with us. I think in many ways, these word pictures are the key to kind of deepening our connection with God and becoming the kinds of people that he, that we were meant to be. Spirit-led people. Not by led by our thoughts, not led by our understanding, but people that are led by the Spirit. So what does this mean? Sounds a little touchy-feely. Having been saved for over 20 years, I always thought of having a deep connection with the Holy Spirit meant that I would feel constantly connected at the hip with God. I just feel him around me everywhere I go. He is there. But according to scripture, I, we identify the Spirit's presence in our life by the fruit that he's producing, not the feelings that we're experiencing. I'll leave that up there for a second. I identify the Spirit's presence in my life by the fruit that God is producing, not the feelings that I'm experiencing. So it's not the hairs that stand up or the tears that flow. It says the presence of God is here in you. It is by the fruit that you produce, that, that he is producing through you. Galatians 5, and 23 says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are those fruits being produced in you and through you? In other words, do not allow yourself to buy into the lie that an emotional experience somehow equals depth in your walk with God. Spiritual depth looks like reflecting God in everyday life. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like what it's always looked like, seeing the oppression of God's people hearing their cries, being aware of their suffering and sacrificing to restore them. In other words, the fruits that he is producing in you. And how do we get better at that, church? We get better at that by leaning into the Spirit's leading in the ways that these metaphors are meant to describe which is why you're going to want to come the next several weeks as we break down these four pictures, breath, clouds, dove, and fire. You cannot miss it. We're going to dig in. We're going to roll up our sleeves, and we're going to dig in, and we're going to tap into what God is wanting to say and teach us and direct us. Amen?